Lila Ambrose was buried in an old and exclusive cemetery just outside the Miami city limits. It was an outdoor service. The sky was a brilliant electric sapphire blue with just a hint of tasteful, wispy gray storm clouds around the edges, almost as an accessory. This was a solemn event. So even Mother Nature dressed accordingly. There were wall-to-wall mourners, standing room only after the first 20 rows. Although everyone was wearing black, no two people dressed quite the same. That would be an insult to the fallen icon. There were hundreds in attendance, with hundreds upon hundreds more behind the police cordon outside the cemetery. Fans and followers, well-wishers, paparazzo by the dozen. It seemed that everyone wanted to be a part of this moment, this final farewell to a true fashion legend and a dedicated humanitarian. There were cops, judges, religious leaders, philanthropists, military brass, alleged mobsters, and more politicians than you could shake a stick at. The governor of Florida was there, as were the previous three governors. They were grouped alongside the U.S. Secretary of State and a sitting Supreme Court justice. And then there were the designers and the fashionistas, a whole row of icons. Tom Ford, Anna Wintour, the Hadid sisters, Mark Jacobs, Kaya Gerber, just to name a few. Trying to describe the funeral of Lila Ambrose is akin to trying to describe a page from a Where's Waldo book. There was just too much going on for a single person to take it all in. Until she came out. And then... All eyes were drawn to her. Many people had stood up to speak, and there were many more to come. But this young lady was of special importance. She wore a stunning long black gown, an Ambrose original, with a thin black veil attached to her wide-brimmed funeral hat. Jessica, meanwhile, the heir to the Ambrose fortune, a poor little orphan girl whose life was turned into a fairy tale. Standing beside her was Cordelia May, her head of security. There were other guards and watchers all around, but they were blending in with the mourners. Jessica leaned in close to the bank of microphones mounted on the pulpit. All of your kind words mean so much, she said. Especially since 
almost everyone here knew Lila for a lot longer than I did. But I think that I knew her in a way no one else here did. I got to see a side of her that she hid for most everyone. Lila sacrificed having a family of her own for all this time. Until me. Lila was brilliant. She started charities. She went all over the world in the name of her work. But she was also a ruthless businesswoman. She was complicated. But there's one thing for sure. She spent decades trying to make the world a better place. And that is not going to stop today. I can't claim to have her mind for fashion or her business acumen, but I do have her passion for helping people, which is just what I'm going to do. Lila may be gone, but her name will live on forever. Thank you. Jessica hid her face with her hand while leaving the stage because she didn't want all those cameras and onlookers to see that she wasn't crying at all. Why would she be? Lila hadn't died. All she'd done was started the doomsday clock. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem. Killers, cannibals, and cults. Fearful fiction and furious fact. Tall tales and terrifying truths. This is A Scary Home Companion. It was called the Piranha Solution, a way that the emissaries could finally bring down Lila Ambrose to nullify her as a threat. For years upon years, these brain-slug-infected lackeys of the ghastly ones had tried to assassinate Lila or to capture her and bring her low before them. But it just never seemed to work out. So they changed tactics. They began to attack her foundations instead, starting a campaign to discredit her and call her previously unimpeachable character into question. There were rumors and innuendo, first online and then in the tabloids, but with enough voices speaking up, eventually the mainstream media started to pay attention. These stories were obviously too far-fetched to be taken at face value, but they were in circulation now. They had people talking. They had people starting to poke around and fact-check and verify. And this, in turn, had a strong impact 
on the corporate entity that was Lila Ambrose. Her sales were down. Her stocks were down. And although it was incremental, everything was moving in the wrong direction. In another year or so, she might even feel the pinch. But this wasn't about the money. Well, not just about the money. There was also her good name to consider, her social standing, and all the power that brought with it. Once a person starts to be perceived as weak to the populace, it really doesn't matter if it's true or not. Allegations have a way of sticking, of following you around forever. And then there was the tell-all book, the straw that broke the camel's back. So Lila was forced to pull the trigger on her grand exit, which she had actually been planning for many years. The plan required significant modification because it needed to be done in a way so public no one could ever dream of questioning it. A helicopter crash at a press conference certainly fits that bill. Now she was gone from the public eye, and all vestiges from her old life. There was only one thing she had to focus on. Her grand work of epic revenge. A hate that burned as hot and stayed as laser-focused as it had for decades. The countdown had begun. The final confrontation was coming. The doomsday clock was ticking. Lila spent two weeks living in the compound set deep in her own coastal Florida property. This was currently the safest place for her to be, but not for long. Over the previous few months, Lila had streamlined and greatly reduced her security team, as well as all other arms of her global operation. Jessica had been very helpful with this. It gave Jess useful work experience for her new life, and also provided Lila with a fresh perspective on many of her employees. Now that Lila was dead, things would need to streamline even more. Cordelia May was in charge of the legit side of security. She was a decorated Canadian soldier with an impeccable record. She was also shrewd, dangerous, and loyal. Her workload was heavier than ever, but she would have to be kept in the light and away from the dark side of the operation. The dark side. That's where Sadie Jane was in charge. The black op stuff, the red op stuff, all off the books. The real work. And the more Cordy and Jessica were kept separate from all this, the safer they would be. This was the end stage. 
Time to trim the fat and keep only the hardcore infrastructure that they needed to see everything through to completion. Including the lab in Puerto Rico, where they had developed most of the fence tech. Eventually, this facility would need to be scaled back and then destroyed. But for now, they had it operating at peak capacity. Sadie wanted weapons. She wanted bombs. She wanted fences. Better to have too many than not enough. Two of the techs from this lab, Ellen Pitch and Wilma Strick, were deployed to the Devil's Triangle and the Caribbean Queen. Up until then, they had no idea the boat existed, nor that it was parked near the breach, nor that a breach existed, nor what a breach fucking was in the first place. And they certainly didn't know that Lila wasn't really dead. All they did know was that they were told this was the single most important installation job they had ever done. They needed to outfit black boxes all around the exterior of the boat, just beneath the bow, and they were to use double the number that they normally would. It took the two women three unpleasant days, but finally, the Caribbean Queen became the most secure place on earth that Lila could be. The captain drove them back to shore personally. Enid Marbury didn't say much until the ride was over when she winked at the ladies and said, Be seeing you girls real soon. Strick and Pitch had no idea that they would be returning and bringing far more dangerous tech with them. But the captain knew it. Later that very night, Enid ferried Lila and a small team to move permanently out to the Caribbean Queen. It was all coming to a close now. Lila watched the shore fall away into the gloomy distance, knowing that she would never see land again. And if she did, it wouldn't be here. It would be the charred remains of the end of days. She needed to be able to see that with her own eyes. She had to confirm her victory over them. From there, Lila settled into her new life. A fully decorated and posh master suite consisting of eight rooms, a personal chef, two valets, and dear Matthias, of course. Until she got settled in and comfortable, Matthias was living on the boat, too, just so he could sit with Lila whenever she slept. Otherwise, they never saw each other. But before bedtime, Matthias was always there, reminding Lila of their many previous lessons sitting nearby in case she needed to be pulled out. Out of respect for him, Lila never wore her beloved eight-month nightgown to bed. 
She did wear it in her chambers during the day, however. It brought her such joy. Lila spent a lot of her time on the main deck, staring out across the water, watching the breach as it arced and undulated in unnatural angles and arcane eddies. It always made her smile. The ghastly ones knew she was here. They knew she was coming. But behind this fence and that phalanx of snipers on guard around the clock, she was untouchable with a front row seat for Armageddon. tell-all expose book entitled The Skin Merchant hit the shelves in the immediate wake of Lila's helicopter crash. The timeliness of her demise swamped the 24-hour news cycle for days on end. And the book, well, the book turned out to be more of a footnote to the tragedy, viewed as a misguided piece of salacious journalism that was, quite frankly, in poor taste. That the contents of said book were entirely truthful and accurate was of no consequence. The following week, the director of the DRO made a public statement. They had examined the crash site and the helicopter, as well as the bodies of Lila, her pilot, and the co-pilot. It had been caused by mechanical failure, not sabotage nor assassination. After that, there were no more hard questions. The lie had been sold. The lie had been endorsed. The lie had been bought. The lie had been consumed. And now the lie had become the official narrative. Jessica played a major role in that, especially during those first couple of weeks. Once upon a time, she would have loved all this attention, but now it was just a chore. She only did a handful of interviews, on suggestions from their legal team and after confirmation from Sadie. During her final interview. Jessica had been very tired, a little stressed out, and was entirely done with this sort of thing. So, off the cuff, she announced that she would be starting a new foundation called Ambrose Victim Services. And Sadie didn't like that. Not one little bit. Which is why it had been Jessica's final interview. Everyone was far too busy to start any new projects right now, no matter how right-minded they might be. One day, but not today, kiddo. 
They did have an entire legal firm working for them. But even they were overworked. There was so much to be done. The battle with Red Hand's productions over intellectual property rights was a quagmire of money and time. The firm had also been streamlining Lila's holdings for the last few months, selling off certain assets, consolidating others. This was a cost-cutting measure, cosmetically, just for efficiency, and not because they were making it easier to sell the whole thing. Lila still had a lot of input, of course, but it was greatly restricted. She couldn't guide things personally as she once had. She could only pass on her wishes to Sadie, Jess, or Cordelia. These were the only people she communicated with outside of the boat. But being where she was so close to the breach, communications were very unreliable, quite sporadic. It might take hours or even days to hear back from Lila. Also, the longer that she was out in the triangle, the less concerned Lila became with her old affairs. So, sometimes, she just didn't bother responding at all. As Enid put it, the old dame is losing it. When Sadie did hear from Lila, she usually got an earful about the countdown to D-Day. The old lady was fixated. Now that she had nothing else to occupy her time, she was obsessed. All the while, Sadie is trying to keep things organized and moving towards the end goal, which could be a few more months. Lila accused Sadie of stalling. And it was something that she would never admit to Lila, nor anyone else. But it was true. Sadie had the keys to the kingdom. The one thing that had brought them all together was hers for the taking. She just had to execute the plan. One big, bold move. And the ghastly ones, the emissaries, the end of days would all be history. They were not natural. They were never supposed to be here. And, as stupid as it sounds, Sadie knew she could be the one to pull the trigger on this and save the goddamn world. And yet, she was stalling. Because she loved Jack. Because she loved Oregon, she loved Manny, she loved Enid. This wasn't just her crew, this was her family. And D-Day had to be considered a suicide mission. The original iteration of the plan called for a suitcase nuke, and that was 100% a one-way ticket. But now they had developed the fence tech, so they had new options. This bomb, the same one they had tested in Briscoe, Kansas, on the town filled with emissaries, it wouldn't kill them because it didn't hurt living things. So, theoretically, they could all come back from this trip 
each and every one. But Sadie was a realist, and how likely was that? Driving a boat into hell itself? Actual, literal hell. Going under the island to that living pool of slugs, blowing up all the demons. This was not the kind of sortie that everyone would return from. She knew better. So maybe, yeah, maybe she was dragging her feet a little bit. She also knew that the longer they waited, the stronger their enemy would be. The Caribbean Queen had made the breach inaccessible to the emissaries. The snipers on board had standing orders to shoot anyone coming out of the breach and sink their vessel. But outside of that, the awareness of the ghastly ones had never been higher. Since the Fantasticon, their influence was growing every single night. So prolonging things any more than necessary would only further endanger her people. D-Day would mean the ruination of some of her family. But every day she wasted increased the chances of that ruination. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. And no matter what she did, that doomsday clock was tick, tick, ticking. One way or another, one day or another, they had to end this. Maggie Cobb had her heels off, feet up on the desk. She was enjoying a little cocktail, or maybe three, as her cutie-patootie new office assistant did the filing. Lila might have been monstrously evil, but she paid exceptionally well. Maggie was back in black, let loose from the noose that kept her hanging around and her visibility was higher than ever. She had a lot of new prospective clients. Life was good. The doorbell chimed. It was after hours, so the door was locked. Immediately, it chimed again. The assistant went to answer the door. There were a few hushed words, and then two armed goons entered her office. Deja vu all over again. They checked around the room and set a familiar-looking flat black box on the desk in front of Maggie, who poutily removed her feet and set down her drink. What the fuck, fellas, she said, slipping her heels back on. We're making sure the place is clean, that you're clean, before Miss Meanwhile can come in. Well, fuck me running. Lightning can strike twice. 
Jessica Meanwhile entered the room, still wearing a morning black dress, but without the hat and veil. Hi, Maggie, she said brightly. Can I call you Maggie? Miss Ambrose called me counselor. Okay. Can I call you Maggie? Sure, Jessica. Have a seat. What can I help you with? I need an outside operator. Someone I can trust to be discreet and handle certain matters for me. Can you be more specific? Not yet. I know you did some things for Lila. She trusted you. Well, if I'm being candid, and I think we both need to be very candid right now. Do you agree? Absolutely. Good. Boys, would you mind, she said, and the armed goons left the office without another word. And you too, please, she said to Maggie's assistant. Thank you. Lila trusted you because she knew how much you needed money, and she knew that your reputation was already... Never mind. But for me, this is who I am. I can't help it. I don't trust those things. I needed to talk to you in person so I could see who you really were. And who am I really, Jessica? I suppose I'm still figuring that out. Jess narrowed her eyes. I think you might be figuring it out, too. Maggie couldn't help but to sort of like this young woman. She saw why Lila liked her, too. Well, then why hold back? This is who I really am. I enjoy cocktail at the end of the day. But only at the end of the day. Now? Yes. Jessica nodded. Lila was an icon. She was a role model for me when I was younger, Maggie said. At first, I was excited. I was so excited to work for her. The pay was excellent, and she was a fair boss. I'm treading lightly here out of respect for the dead, but I did some things for her that I'm not proud of. So as much as I would love to blindly take your retainer, which I assume will be ample, I can't put myself in that position to be an operator. If you have a specific case to work or an agenda to push, I'm your girl. Jessica nodded. She liked this answer. Well, I can be a fair boss too, Maggie. You're right, the pay will be very good. Another bonus is that I'm not sadistic, I'm not insane, and I don't skin babies. So you don't have to worry about that. Maggie spilled her drink. You know? I know everything, Maggie. There was a moment of silence 
where they appraised each other with new eyes. You kept Lila's secrets for her, and there was such a feeding frenzy for scandal about her, all those little nibbling piranha. So it must have been tempting. And then she died, and you could have spilled everything and made a big payday. But you didn't, did you? Or did you? I just want you to tell me if you might have maybe possibly kind of sort of let a little something slip. I... Shit. (sighs) You already know, don't you? Know what? That I might have accidentally talked about Perry Ambrose's hunting lodge. It wasn't for money. It was... It was pillow talk. Everyone was wired and upset after the crash at the press conference, and I went home with one of the guys. Maybe I had a few too many. I didn't know that I was on the record. Jessica nodded. Did you hear about what happened there? At the lodge? Uh, No, I, I, I didn't. What happened? That's good. It means our friends did their jobs and kept it away from the media. Which was very difficult this time, Maggie. Very difficult considering that he was a part of the media. Maggie took a sip. What happened, Jessica? Well, I don't want to be indelicate. But let's just say he won't be calling you back. Ever. Oh, no. Yeah. Loose lips sink ships, right? Maggie poured another drink. No mixer, no ice, pure sauce. His name was Shipley. I know. I'm not trying to make fun, but I thought of loose lips sink ships on the way over, and it just seemed like something that Lila would have said. Jessica got up. As if answering a silent dog whistle, her goons reappeared. I really appreciate you taking the time for me, Maggie. And I can tell that you are being honest. I'll be in touch when I have something you can help me with. Jessica, did you mean what you said about Lila at her service? Every word. Good night, Counselor. Her men took her home. She was living in Lila's old mansion, nestled behind an active fence. And slowly, a little bit every day, she was turning it from an old lady house into her house. But it was too empty. There were guards and assistants and what have you, but... Jessica felt very alone. She missed Epiphany. She wanted things to go back to the way they were before the kidnapping and the priest and Kipo Flats and the snake preacher, but... (sighs) She was in no mood to wallow in that tonight. Not again. 
especially when she saw there was a friend waiting for her in the kitchen. Closed casket Jack. He had a box with him, filled with old tapes, maps, documents, and more. And he was spreading everything out across the kitchen table. Jack! She hugged him, and he hugged her back. Can we talk? He asked. Do you have ice cream? No. I have something terrible to tell you. That couldn't be farther away from ice cream. Okay, I lied. There is ice cream. But also, I do have something terrible to tell you. What is it? It's the truth about everything. The end of days, the ghastly ones, the emissaries, all of it. So much has been kept from you, Jessica. And that's not fair. It's time you finally understood what we are really fighting. Thank you for listening to a... Wait. Just so you know, this isn't one of those open-ended cliffhangers that I put on the back burner for a few months. That's my style, I know. But not this time. Next episode continues from this moment. Do you want to know what it's really all about? What's really fucking happening? What the ghastly ones and the emissaries really are. In ten days, just like Jessica, you'll find out. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. Find the show on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit. Or you can contact us directly at a scary home companion at gmail.com. Better still, join the Patreon. Patrons heard this episode a couple of weeks ago and are currently having their faces melted by the follow up Revelations. Sign up for free to get updates on the show or become a paying member to get early episode releases exclusive bonus stories, games, a copy of the book Bedtime Stories for Weird Kids, and a lot more to come. Join the best horror fans in the world in helping to keep original horror storytelling alive and kicking. Killer music provided by Damiano Baldoni with Bewitched Hell, Funeral Battle, and World of Ruin. Serge Quadrado with Funeral Piano and Funeral. Squire Tuck with Add Another Log to the Funeral Pyre. All of these songs and thousands more are available at freemusicarchive.org.